It wasn't that long ago that Danica, our oldest daughter, and I were attending a sporting event with very limited parking, so instead of taking our car, we hopped in an Uber. And one of the great things about hopping in an Uber is you have no idea who's going to be driving you and what their story is. Well, this is the guy who was driving us this day. His name was Isaac, and his faith just radiated all over his face and the way that he spoke. You could tell that by the way that he spoke that he wasn't originally from Atlanta. He did not have a southern draw. He had a a thick African accent. And having been to Africa multiple times, asked him which particular country. He talked about coming from Nigeria. We talked about his upbringing a little bit and education. And he did not know that I was a pastor, but the subject of church came up. And so we're driving through the city of Atlanta. And have you noticed in Atlanta when you drive through the city that there's a lot of churches? And so you see a church here and a church there. And, you know, if it's a Baptist church, it's, you know, this church was the same church as this church, but then they got mad at one another. And so they, you know, did a church plant. They call it a a split or a plant, depending on what your your perspective is across the street. So there's church after church after church all over the city. And and he's he's sitting there and he's talking and and he's like, do you know what? I have a dream. I have a hope, I have a wish for every single one of these churches. And my dream, my hope for these churches is that the people that go in them, that they will come out and they will look more like Jesus. And he's like just preaching it up and I'm pulling out my phone and I'm taking notes and Danica's turning to me and she's like, Isaac's gonna be in a sermon. And I'm like, you bet he's gonna be in a sermon. He is the preacher Uber driver where he is just talking about and he's hit the nail on the head. That the goal is not just to come here and to come to church and to to be encouraged a little bit and then to leave and go back to your everyday life. No, the point is to come to church so that you might be changed, that you might be transformed and that you might conform more to the image of the one who created you. And so we're talking about in this series as we go through the fall, the grace habits that might actually help us to go through that transformation process, that we ought to become more and more people of grace. And that's an acronym for us to help us to remember that God wants us to become more grateful, available, curious, and encouraging. Say that with me. Grateful, available, curious, and encouraging, and that there's lots of little habits that are underneath this rubric. And so we've got in your bulletin, you've got this grace habits tearaway portion, which is the back part of it. We hope that you'll tear this out, that you'll put it somewhere on your desk or up on your refrigerator or somewhere where you'll see it, because under each of these attributes of grateful, available, curious, and encouraging, we've developed four different practices, four little things that you could do that could move the needle. It doesn't take a lot of effort to start them. But the actual life change that comes to the other side of that is it's incredible to see what could happen. So we talked about keeping a list. We talked about how we tend to be a forgetful people. And as a result, when you just start to record the blessings that God has given to you each and every day, it's amazing how much you'll notice and your gratitude level goes up. We talked about uh, last week setting it aside that we all want to become more generous people But the breakdown is not in our compassion, it's in our preparation that we're unwilling to set aside resources. And when you do actually set aside resources to be deployed for God, you're available for all kinds of new things that happen and your gratitude level goes up. And today we're going to talk about owning your stuff. We're going to talk about the uplifting subject of confession and repentance. Aren't you glad you came to church today? 
Well, if you want to go deeper in this series, one of the tools that we've provided for you is that down in the Williams Center when the service is over, as well as in our Lodge Cafe throughout the week, we've got four different books that we think are great resources to help you do a double click and to be able to explore um, how these things might apply to your life in an even more significant way. I firmly believe, and you've heard me say this if you've been around Peachtree, that good preaching makes people hungry. It doesn't feed them. The goal is, for not, is not for you to come here and to hear a message and then to go back to business as usual. The goal is that this moment whets your appetite and you want to go back to God's word. You want to go deeper into a book, deeper into relationship together. And so those are four resources we recommend for you. If you want to check them out after the service, they'll be down in the Williams Center. Today I want to begin, I want to begin by telling you the story of Kim and Douglas's wedding. Kim was the junior high director um, at our Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas, and she was originally from Houston, so she was getting married in Houston, and I agreed to perform the wedding. And so it's, we're all in Houston, we're all gathered together, and we're getting ready to do the rehearsal of the wedding before the rehearsal dinner. And everybody's there except for one important person, the maid of honor. And for whatever reason, the maid of honor was not there, was not showing up. And this is before the days of, you know, kind of mostly texting with our phones and things like that. This was like the flip phone era, and we couldn't seem to reach her on the phone. And so we were going to have to just get ready to start the rehearsal when all of a sudden, Douglas, the groom's phone rings, and, and it's his sister on the other line. And she is crying, and she is distraught, and we're like, where are you? Are you okay? And she's like, I'm fine, but I'm not going to be there for the rehearsal, the rehearsal dinner. And we're why aren't you going to be here? And through the tears, we started to piece together the story that she had left in plenty of time to make it from San Antonio to Houston, but instead of going on I-10 East, this is before you had GPS on your phone in your car, instead of going on I-10 East, she had driven for two hours towards El Paso before she realized that she was going in the wrong direction. So she really did travel four hours, and she got right back to where she started. And she got to San Antonio. She knew she was never going to make it. She bought a plane ticket, but she wasn't going to get there till later that night. And she was so sad. After two hours of driving in the wrong direction, she had to do one of these. She had to do a U-turn. Can you think of moments in your own life where you've been going in the wrong direction and you've had to do a U-turn? I know that I can Repentance in the Bible is just a fancy word for doing a U-turn, for turning around. Confession was the phone call that she had to make to the groom in order to tell him that she wasn't going to be there. And so today, I want us to dive into a really important subject that we tend to avoid in today's day and age. Did you know that the first word of the first sermon that Jesus ever preached that we have recorded in the Gospels is the word repent? And this word has a lot of baggage with it. There are a lot of preachers that abuse this word just to make people feel bad about themselves. And on the other extreme, there's people who have the philosophy of kind of, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. And they don't really think that there's anything 
to repent about. And so we avoid this word. And lost in the shuffle between these two extremes is something ancient and relevant to living a grateful life. When I was 10 years old, uh, my best friend was Ryan Kelly. He lived down the street, and the way that we would hang out after school, we went to two different schools, is we would get on our dirt bikes, and we would go all around the neighborhoods. The only rule was to be home when it got dark, and we didn't have playgrounds anywhere near us, but what we did have, if you went to the end of my street and you did a little bit of trespassing, you could find your way to a new development where they had these huge mounds of dirt where they had moved the earth around and there were a lot of limestone rocks and so we would build these huge forts where we would put kind of like castle walls and we would pretend like people were invading us and on this one particular time we're we're on the top of one of those mounds and Ryan's like oh no they're attacking and he would take some of the rocks and he started throwing them over the wall as if they're attacking us well his aim was really good and he cold clocked me in the side of the head I immediately fell down started bleeding could already feel the swelling that was starting to happen and Ryan I saw stars Ryan had to help me um, kind of get back to the house couldn't get on my bike and made it back home. My dad was a physician, immediately in concussion protocol. Ryan goes home, and the hours start to tick away. Dad's checking on me to make sure that I'm okay and staying awake. And a couple hours later, I hear Ryan and his parents in the kitchen, and that Ryan has come to check on me. It was dark in the room where I was, in the living room, and The door was cracked and you could see the beam of light on the lime green 70s carpet as he made his way towards me. And he came over and he stood over me and I'm lying down on the couch trying to look really pathetic and sad with a big ice pack on my head and he's like, hey. And I'm like, hey. Because this is how guys talk. And um, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he kind of shuffles his feet a little bit, and he's like, I remember exactly what he said. He said, I'm sorry you got hurt. (laughs) Now, I may have been 10 years old, but I knew this was the lamest apology ever. I'm sorry you got hurt. This is the kind of thing that like lawyers write for athletes when they've basically like cheated and defrauded the American public and been like, I'm sorry you're offended. Like it's just, it's an apology, but it's not really an apology. I didn't need him to feel bad. I didn't need him to feel bad for me. I didn't need him to feel bad for himself. You know what I did want in order for us to move forward? I wanted him to be honest. I wanted him to take responsibility. In a phrase, I wanted him to own his stuff. You know, we're the kind of people that don't like to do that. We live in a world where we're bruised. And if we kind of take an honest estimation, we bruise others. And yet we still don't like to admit what's going on. It wasn't that long ago where Kelly was being vulnerable with me. She was sharing with me something that I had said that 
had hurt her feelings, and um, I remember what I said. Um, I, I said, I'm sorry, but that's not what I meant. And I was working on a sermon on owning your stuff at that very day. And I realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm no better than the 10-year-old Ryan Kelly. Doesn't matter what I meant. What matters is what I said. What matters is the way I behave. I am 100% responsible for what I say and what I do. Nobody else can own that stuff. Just me. And there's just a little spiritual conviction inside me where the, the Spirit of God is like, Rich, you've got you to be willing to repent. Well, the Bible has a lot to say on this subject, and as we get into the text a little bit, I have uh, called for a lifeline. I phoned a friend in order to help me out. Can you give a Peachtree welcome to Ellie to come forward? Come on, Ellie. Thank you, friend. So glad. So glad to have you here. Who are you and what are you doing here? Uh, my name is Ellie. I'm a Messianic Jew from Israel. I live in Haifa, which is on Mount Carmel, and I'm a tour guide. Fantastic. You're a tour guide. We've gotten to be on a tour with you. You live on Mount Carmel, where like Elijah called down the fire from heaven. That's so cool. Where do you live? <laughs> I live in Sandy Springs. No fire from heaven. That's... Uh, not, not quite as exciting. So one of the things you do for a living is you bring people from, you know, all over the world. They come and they, they take tours with you and you tour the Holy Land. What's the typical impact on an individual when you do that? The, the typical impact will be seeing the Bible come alive as Atlanta has come alive to me. <laughs> so the humidity has come alive to you, the... The traffic has come alive to you, and hopefully the beluga whales will come alive to you as you, as you get to go um, see, see those. You get to see it for yourself. What, I mean, you know, we read the Bible, and we're so far removed from the geography of what's there. What are some of the misconceptions of the Bible that we have and that kind of get broken when you go to Israel? So a lot of people think that Israel is just one big desert, and it's not. There's uh, green and areas that get snow and lakes. So it's, it's different in the sense of landscape. Mm -hmm. And also it's very small. So things are really close to each other. Yeah, it's really fun. You like, it takes more time to get on the bus and to get off the bus than it does to travel from one location to the other. And you're like, you, you, go, you go like two minutes on the bus and you're like, we're here already? Because they walked everywhere. It's, it's, uh, it's so amazing to have the Bible come alive, the land speaks. Um, sadly, there's, it's not a high percentage of Christians in Israel. Um, tell us how you became a Christian. Um, God called several times throughout my life. The first time was when I was in high school. Um, eventually, he used my commander in the army who was a believer to... Um, basically share the gospel with me. It was through a relationship of being friends for several years that he asked me if I will be willing to read a book that he'll give me. And it was through reading that book 
that I realized that God exists. And the book also talked about Jesus, and it was through my research and trying to understand who Jesus was uh, and reading the New Testament and examining it, the New Testament that by God's grace I understood that he is the Messiah. Well, thanks be to God for that. The, um, a part of the Bible that is very foreign to us like when, when we decide, like, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. It's like Genesis, Exodus, still doing strong. Leviticus, boom, you just fall right on your face. You're like, I have no idea what's going on in here. Can you help, help us understand the book of Leviticus? What's going on there? So the book of Leviticus comes after the book of Exodus, where that book ends with the people of Israel building the tabernacle, and the glory of God comes down on the tabernacle, but Moses can't go into the tabernacle. And part of the reason is because of the sin of the golden calf that took place before that. So the book of Leviticus will deal with how can a sinful people like the people of Israel can come and get close to the presence of God who is a holy God. So it's like the beginning of Exodus is that there's, there's no... Uh, they, they can't find the presence of God. Exodus ends with God being established on the throne in the tabernacle, and then there's this gap. There's this gap between um, who we are and who God is that we can't bridge on our own. And so one of the things that you see a lot are the different sacrifices and, and also a lot of emphasis on confession and repentance. Tell us in the Hebrew tradition, what, what does repentance mean? So the, the Hebrew word for repentance actually means to, to come back, to turn around. Because when you're sinning, you're basically turning your back towards God and you're walking in the direction that you think will benefit you. And when you realize this is, this is not going to do me any, any good, that's when you turn around 180 degrees and start walking back towards God. I love how concrete the, the Hebrew is for that because we tend to think of sin, like when we hear it today, we tend to think of it as like you broke um, 0.3a sub 0.1 of a rule or a statute on some kind of heavenly piece of paper somewhere and that God's ready to get you for it when in reality it is, it's that you're walking away from God and God wants nothing more but for you to turn around and to come back, that that's that that's repentance. So there's a lot of sacrifices in the, the book of Leviticus. There's the, the Day of Atonement, um, which is kind of the heart of the book of Leviticus. Um, help us to understand what is, what is Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement? So the Day of Atonement was the day that uh, they would offer certain sacrifices in the temple to atone for the sins of the people. And in addition to that, they would torment their souls uh, so they will also feel sorry for what they did. And uh, today, because you can't offer sacrifices because there's no temple in Jerusalem, uh, what they do is they continue with the tormenting uh, part. And the rabbis at a certain point decided that fasting is a great way to torment your soul, and that's what they do. I agree with the rabbis. Fasting is a way to, to torment your soul. Um, so, so the book of Leviticus and the practices and the sacrifices there help us to draw near to God um, and repair uh, the, the chasm between us and, and God. But the book of Leviticus isn't just about between us and God. It's also about between us and our neighbor. Talk about what Leviticus has for us there. So the verse 
love thy neighbor as yourself is, is the verse that we find in the book of Leviticus. And that's, that's where God is also talking about the relationship between us and our, neighbor, our neighbors, not just us and him. So when Jesus is, um, you know, pulling together his answer to the, to the question of what's the greatest commandment, he pulls both Deuteronomy, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, um, and then he blends it together with the reconciliation of neighbor, uh, love thy neighbor. He didn't pull that out of thin air. He was drawing on that Leviticus tradition. And if you want to go look at Leviticus 19 on your own, when you look at the command of loving neighbor in context, one of the things that you'll notice there is it's basically the contrast of you can either love your neighbor or you can exact vengeance on your neighbor, that those are kind of the two options and that most of us prefer the vengeance route as opposed to the nature of the self-sacrificial love. So let's fast forward to the New Testament. There's this time uh, when Jesus is giving what's known as the Sermon on the Mount along the, sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he says this, he says, if any of you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the front of the altar Go and be reconciled with them, and then come back and offer your gift. Can you help us to understand kind of the context of what Jesus is saying there? So he's, he's saying that when he's in the area of the Sea of Galilee. So if you came from Capernaum, it, you took a, a journey of 100 miles between five to six days to get to Jerusalem. And then when you get to the temple, you understand, wait a minute, my brother has something against me. You're going to leave your sacrifice there. It's not going to be waiting for you when you'll come back. And you're going to make your way uh, through another journey back to reconcile. So it's, I mean, Jesus is making an extreme point. It's almost like a ridiculous point. It's, you've taken this long journey to get to the temple to make this sacrifice, to, to make amends and atone in this way. And then you're like, oh my gosh, you know, Brother Ned, he's, he's mad at me. You go back the hundred miles to go reconcile with your brother, and then you come back, you have to buy another sacrifice at that point, and then you go back and forth. Jesus is saying, we ought to be the kind of people that go way out of our way to be at peace with our brothers and our sisters. Can you thank Ellie for helping us to understand the scripture? So the nature of these scriptures as such is that the way that things get reconciled is through self-sacrificial love. And we might look back on the look of Leviticus and, and kind of say, oh my gosh, that's incredibly barbaric. But the reality is, is that no forgiveness or reconciliation can happen without sacrifice. If I come over to your house and if I break something, one of two things has to happen. Either I have to pay for it or you have to forgive it. But somebody's got to pay. And the question is, who's going to pay? And how much does it cost? There is no forgiveness. There is no reconciliation. There is no way forward without someone paying the sacrifice, without someone paying the price. I love how Tim Keller describes it. So let's say this in unison together, will we? The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, and yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Bad news, good news. The bad news is, is that you and I are broken, flawed, 
people that the fault line of what is wrong in this world is not just out there, it is within our own hearts. And I am so flawed that someone had to pay the price. And yet, I am so cherished. I am so treasured. I am so valued. I am so loved that it was for the sake of the joy that Jesus went to the cross, that Jesus was glad to die for you and me. When we think about someone becoming a Christian, we almost think of it as as someone kind of changing teams. We almost think of it in terms of that they used to wear one jersey and now they they have a different jersey. You used to be uh, kind of rooting for, for that God, and now you're, you're rooting for, for that God. And so when people think of evangelism, they think of somebody kind of coming over to our team, so we're happy that you're on our team, but that's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is a word that means to share good news. You need to know that I believe that the source of the only hope of what we have in the world from being mended is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Every worldview, every way of life, every religion, everybody, regardless of whether they say they're a person of faith or not, is putting their faith in a system or something or someone that is trying to figure out how the world ought to be. And there is something fundamentally different about the Christian gospel other than any other religion, any other worldview, any other practice that's out there. Because all of those other practices are some form or fashion of if you do these things, if you confess in this way or you offer these things, then you will get the reconciliation that you were looking for, the resolution, the hope that you were looking for. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the other way around. In other words, it's like this. We don't confess in order to be forgiven. We are forgiven, and because of that, we are willing to confess. It is in the security of the covenant of my wife's love that I am willing to be vulnerable because I know of the security of that love. I do not confess in order to earn her love. The love is a prerequisite. You may have never considered it this way, but the grace of God is already there before you show up. The love of God is the foundation upon which you and I have the means by which to be honest, to be responsible, and to be able to move on in this broken world that so desperately desperately needs people who are willing to confess and repent. Christians ought to be the least defensive people in the world because we don't have anything to be insecure about. We don't have to worry about it. I have a friend that several years ago his wife was going on kind of a girl's weekend trip, and he had the kids for the weekend. The kids were young, and the thought of just kind of sitting at home with the kids all weekend did not sound life-giving to him. And so um, he was like, he, he got a place at a resort where there'd be like pools and slides and all kinds of fun things. And he's like, I'm going to go there for the weekend because it'll be easier to entertain the kids. So he goes away. He's kind of the single parent with the kids. 
And while he's there, he goes on a drinking binge that if I were to tell you the details of it, it would make you cringe. It was so bad that he put the life of his kids in jeopardy. It was also so bad that he knew he couldn't, couldn't hide this one, couldn't sweep this one under the rug, that if he continued on the path that he was on, that it would mean the destruction of himself, his career, his, his family, his marriage, that he really had hit bottom. And so he was willing to go to recovery. And after he was done with recovery, one of the things that he did is he, he came to me and he gave a full account, no holes barred, of what he had done that weekend. And he didn't need to tell me because I needed to know. He told me because he needed to say it. And he needed to be in brotherhood and in fellowship with people who understood him, people who accepted him anyway, and people who were going to look out for him. If you've ever been to AA, if you've ever been to a meeting, if you know somebody who has, you probably know that the way that they start the sharing is by you show up, you say your name, and you say that you're an alcoholic. And people celebrate you. They welcome you in that moment. They accept you in that moment. The acceptance is a prerequisite. But they're not celebrating you because you have a drinking problem. They're celebrating you because you have a problem that you cannot solve on your own. And you now acknowledge it. That's, that's what they celebrate. You and I might be addicted to a variety of things. There might be all kinds of rivals for our allegiance to God. And what we believe in the gospel is that Jesus has paid the one sufficient sacrifice in the cross so that you and I can be forgiven, that you and I might be free. And so I wonder, as you pass by and you drive around the city and you see church after church after church, I wonder if each of those little churches would be a little trigger for you to say, you know what, I'm not going to pretend anymore. Dallas Willard says that if the church is going to flourish in the future, it will look a lot more like AA than it does right now. Because we won't be a people pretending Defensive, putting up walls, living for vengeance instead of love of neighbor. We'll be making amends, and Christians, followers of Jesus, would be the first to confess, to own their stuff. That's what it'll take. The reason it's a key to a grateful life is because he's already done it for you. And the question is, will you enter into it? Let's pray together.
Lord, the numerous rocks that we throw, the bruising that we have inflicted, the words that we have spoken, the things that we have done. what we have neglected to say, what we have failed to do that we knew what was right, the anger, the pride, the contempt, the greed. Lord, your desire is not for us to feel bad about ourselves, but to just be honest. And so in this prayer, we, we take responsibility for what we've said, for what we've done, for what we've neglected. And in the silence of this moment, we ask that you will hear our private confessions. Heavenly Father, that's not just true for us as individuals, it's true for us as a society, as a people. That we are a people who have long forgotten what it means to love you and to love our neighbors collectively. We ignore the poor. We pillage the earth for temporary gain. We have come to accept lies as truth. Lord, hear our silent confessions as a people. 